Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. That song, by the way, is called Every Day's A Lesson in Humility, which I think is a good theme for the show today. And I picked it out because it is a good theme for the show today, and also because it's performed sort of by Bell and Sebastian, but the lead vocal is by Suki Waterhouse, who, if you watched Daisy Jones and the whatever, whatever, I've now forgotten the name of the series, you feel like Suki Waterhouse should get more musical opportunities. And there, and I think she goes out with, doesn't she date uh, Robert Pattinson? Robert Pattinson? That's a good project in there, the research project. We have an intern there. Find out whether Suki Waterhouse still goes out with Robert Pattinson. That's the kind of thing we need to nail down today. All right. Uh, first of all, let's ask or tell me anything. So you can call in 888-720-WNPR. You may ask or tell me anything. Hence the title. 888-720-9677. Uh, that's how you dial us. Or if you like to do the thing where you, you know, spell things out. It's 888-720-WNPR. If you do not call in, it will not be the case that I have nothing to talk about. But I would rather talk to you about whatever you want to talk about. And there is no theme. There's no preordained set of ideas here. Um, and I also have with me, if I need them, I haven't brand, I haven't even really brandished these. But I think the, uh, the booth will attest that I am brandishing something now. Uh, I I have Mr. Carp on blows. Mr. Carp was the he was the person in college who was smarter than the rest of us, and he did very well. And now I mean, he did very well. He did very very well for himself. I I don't, I don't even want to go into details. I'm not sure how many details he would be comfortable having me go into. But what he does now in his golden years is uh, clip things out of newspapers and magazines and send them to his friends with cryptic underlining. And so I have some of those, and they're all sealed in envelopes. So, um, you know, I mean, I don't know what's in them. That's what I was trying to say. Oh, I'm getting a message about them. And it looks like they're – oh, Suki Waterhouse and Robert Pattinson are still together. So so I'll be signing off now. I just wanted to get that uh, – <laughs> no. So here's – first of all, I'll tell you a little story, and then I wanna, I'll make an observation. Uh, and then if no one calls, I will just – Continue to make observations. All right. So I'll give the number out again just in case. 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. So uh, last evening, my partner and I went to a social function. 
which I'm pretty sure what with one tragedy and, and vicissitude after another being visited upon us and our nearest and dearest over the last three years, I'm pretty sure we haven't been to a social function in three years, not, not including family things. So um, so we went to the social function. It was a very nice social function. We were happy to be there. It was outdoors too, you know. So, um, And a person, a woman came up to me, not just a person, but a woman uh, came up to me. And she said, um, she began the conversation by saying, hi, I know you're shy, which is true. I mean, I am actually somewhat shy and a little bit awkward around people, uh, which having had for, I don't know, 30 or 40 years now, a fairly public career was an odd set of choices. But anyway, she said, I know you're shy. And then she said, and I know you're phasing out. And I said, what? <laughs> like, in, <laughs> in what sense am I? Who, t- who, who have you been talking to? Who told you I was phasing out? Why, why do you think I'm phasing out? Uh, and, and that sort of wrecked the whole conversation. I think she just started backing away or something. Uh, but then I thought, am I phasing out? Have I not been told that I'm phasing out? What would phasing out actually amount to when you get down to it? So I, I'm still wondering about that. I think we might be having phone problems. There's like six people in the room where they go where there are phone problems. Uh, there's a lot of people standing there looking problemed. Um, so we might be having phone problems. If you can't get through, we're working on it. We're <clears throat> efforting it. Fortunately, I, I am... I am of a mind <laughs> where I really can talk for 49 minutes, uh, and I will. So um, I want to talk about something that is in the news. It, it's sort of in the news, except, I mean, really what it is, it's in the Twitter. It's in the Twitter. It's in the Instagram. It's not really in the news. And so, first of all, let me set the stage here. We are spending too much time talking about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I am spending too much time talking about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and writing about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and any other kinds and commuting, commuting, communicating telepathically about Robert F. K. Jr., Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I'm even losing the ability to say his name correctly. But, I mean, there's just – this is – uh, I wouldn't call it a frivolous candidacy, but it is not a meaningful candidacy. On the other hand, you know, he's attracting these poll numbers. Ba-da-ba-da. Anyway, that's not what I want to talk about. Although I will say that <clears throat> one reason that I think that I, I – like I'm on Facebook and I'm talking to people. Uh, and sometimes – and there's you know one person who listens to this show a lot who's really into Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And I can't stop debating him with her. And I think the reason is – I think the reason is that you feel like the person you're talking to is persuadable. Like with MAGA people, you just know there's nothing you're going to be able to say, right? <laughs> That's There's no set of facts you could provide. Uh, but you sort of feel like with this other sort of person who is not a MAGA person and is maybe attracted to – oh, I think the phones are working – who is attracted to Robert F. Kennedy perhaps for somewhat more wholesome reasons um, – but then is starting to buy into his bizarre claims, which are not limited to the transmission of autism through vaccinations. I mean, it's like all over the place now. He's been claiming that Wi-Fi crosses the blood-brain barrier and that I mean, it's like every day there's a new one. It's like he, he, he realizes he's got to drop a new single every, every day. So, um, and of course, we had the one about Prozac being a possible cause of mass shootings and on and on. So, but you sort of feel like this person is persuadable. Meanwhile, and this is what I really want to talk about, 
you this may have gone on undetected by you if you were not wasting huge swaths of your life on social media. But there's this movement by Joe Rogan to challenge Peter Hotez, who is a a noted medical scientist, happens to be from Hartford, Connecticut, a noted medical scientist uh, who has actually appeared on Rogan's show in the past to debate, to debate Robert F. Kennedy. Um, There is, as is so often the case with Joe Rogan, he says then there would be no time limits because, of course, a Joe Rogan episode can go for a really long time. Uh, and they would just talk and talk and talk apparently until this whole thing was thrashed out. And it would be presumably refereed by Joe Rogan, which is one very good reason for Peter Ho- Dr. Peter Hotes not to, to, to take him up. Uh, and did I mention that uh, Joe Rogan is offering to give $100,000 to the charity of Peter Hotes's choice? Peter Hotez, by the way, is a, he really is a very, very noted writer and commentator and scientist, uh, particularly in the area of vaccines. He himself, I think possibly relevantly, I believe has a child who, who uh, is somewhere on the autism spectrum. So he would be very interested in knowing whether vaccines cause autism and he, he knows that they don't. Uh, but beyond that, he is somebody who really has pushed very hard not only for you know good standard public health practices, including vaccination during the COVID epidemic, but also for the development of a more affordable and easier to spread around the world to poor countries vaccine. Anyway, he's a force for good. We're annoyed with him because he never comes on our show, uh, but he is a, a force for good. And so the idea would be that he would go, <laughs> he would go on the Joe Rogan show and debate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And he doesn't want to do it. And I mean, I think he's right. Uh, I think, first of all, there you don't have to debate everybody. You know, you don't have to debate the guy who says, and I'm not making this up. <laughs> you don't have to debate the guy who says that Wi-Fi crosses the blood brain barrier and not only causes brain tumors, but may also do more profound and nuanced granular things. Based on nothing, based on no scientist, no research, just kind of a hunch. Uh, you don't have to debate that guy any more than Jewish leaders have to go debate a Holocaust denier. There is no point in doing that. You know, it is not, it's not a worthy enough idea that the Holocaust didn't happen so that some, that some important, thoughtful, intelligent Jewish leader, or anybody else for that matter, should go in a public forum and debate that person. And, and it's similar to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. His ideas are bad. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Why? Why would somebody of Peter Hotez's stature go and debate him? Peter Hotez should be having spirited debates and conversations at medical conferences and science conferences with people who ha- have comparable attainments to him. So since that's a stupid idea, Joe Joe Rogan's solution is to try to shame him into it by saying, you're not accepting $100,000 from me to the charity of your choice. And I think other deranged billionaires have been, or or deranged billionaires anyway, have been jumping in and maybe upping the ante a little bit. And you kind of feel bad for Hotez because he's not going to win here. But the win is to not not do it. And, And let me just say the other thing about this, the thing where there's no time limit. That's the, that's a Joe Rogan signature, and people ask sometimes why people like me disdain Joe Rogan, and and in particular they say, hey, did you listen to the entire three hour episode? These are three they they often are three hour episodes. He did a three hour episode with Robert F Kennedy Jr. recently. 
the, and the, the Rogan people, did you listen to the entire? No, I didn't listen to the three-hour episode because the reason there's it's a three-hour episode is he hasn't done any preparation, Joe Rogan. He doesn't prepare for interviews. He doesn't do what we do, which is often pre-interview the people who come on our show. Um, we have a plan. <laughs> we work hard on that plan. Uh, we work hard to do a 49-minute episode that will contain as much information as possible without going down a lot of hideous blind alleys. So I'm sort of professionally offended the way you would be offended no matter what job you do. If you work hard at your job and you prepare for your job and you show up ready to go and prepared and fully briefed and backgrounded and you've got a game plan and you encounter other people who do what you do and they're not prepared – and they haven't, they haven't given any thought to how this particular day or hour of the day is going to go, you probably look down on that person and think he gives what you do a bad name. That's how I feel about Joe Rogan. And I don't I, – I, the notion that it, it can be three hours long or in the case of this putative debate between Hotez and Kennedy, that it could go on forever. There would be no time limits. That's just somebody who doesn't have anything else to do and doesn't have any real plan. I mean, there's a reason, for example, that presidential debates don't go on for three hours because that's not an efficacious way to present information about two candidates to the American public, a three-hour debate. It doesn't really make any sense. So anyway, I just – I feel like we've come into that phase and there's sort of a gladiator thing to it, right? And if you don't do it, if you're Peter Hotez and you have enough sense to know, first of all, that this is not going to be a, a sane, high-functioning area to work in. <laughs> and, and you also realize this is not a debate worth having. In other words, this person has no background, no training. He doesn't know anything about the stuff that I, Peter Hotez, knows about. Why would I do that? You're going to be reviled in certain, ca uh, certain corners as a coward, which is happening. And I do want to point out that one of the people who has engaged most recently in this kind of reviling is the quarterback, the football quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, who I'm so thrilled as a lifelong Packers fan. I'm so thrilled that Aaron Rodgers was traded to the Jets. I would have traded him to the Jets for a cord of firewood. If it was like seasoned and in reasonable condition, just to get him out of our lives, he's a horrible man. <laughs> <laughs> he's a narcissistic idiot uh, who, who's also smart. Like a lot of idiots, he's kind of a smart person. But, um, but anyway, he's one of the people now on social media shaming Peter Hotez and, and saying that Kennedy would, in I think his uh, language, mop the floor with Hotez. So I just – this – we've descended into this kind of environment of gladiatorial bullying representing itself as – a reasoned debate. It is not. All right. Uh, now we do have some calls. I am going to go to them and let's see what they are about. We'll start with Stephen in Weathersfield. We'll go right down the line. Here we go. Stephen, you have the floor. Hi, Colin. Great to hear your voice as always. Um, months ago, at the tail end of one of your shows, you made a remark about. Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm hearing you. Okay, sorry. Months ago, at uh, the tail end of one of your shows, in passing, you made a remark about um, the crisis of loss of coverage in the arts, meaning reviews of shows, previews of shows, interviews, et cetera, et cetera, and kind of tagged it as a problem, but it wasn't really part of your show. So I kind of wanted to call you up mm -hmm. as a working artist myself, remind you of your remark, and see if you could open that up a little bit and talk about it. 
Yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I'll just sort of... We used to have critics that really were literate in their form writing about it, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, no, I mean, first of all, let's just talk about here in Connecticut. Because, I mean, I think to a certain degree there's arts coverage and arts criticism at the national level and in places like the Washington Post and the New York Times and the LA Times, you know, but what the, the loss has been at the local level. Uh, and cert- yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah cer- certainly, you know, I mean, here in Connecticut, and I know the southern part of Connecticut less well, but, you know, I mean, I worked at the Hartford Current for 19 years, and, you know, our group of critics included Malcolm Johnson, a very, very formidable formidable theater and and, uh, and movie critic and kind of a polymath to a certain degree. Uh, I worked directly for him. I had a chance to experience the vastness of his mind and to be – when I first went to work with him, I suddenly realized, wow, I don't know anything. And he expected me to know a lot of things. And we had a, a formidable jazz critic. We had art critics like Bernard Hansen. Um, we, you know, we had we had Steve Metcalf, obviously, writing uh, uh, about uh, classical music and orchestral music and uh, chamber music and stuff like that. And, I mean, a lot of these people were serious enough and good enough at what they did that, you know, they would really kind of begin a conversation. Like a Malcolm Johnson review of a Hartford Stage Company performance would start a weeks-long conversation among people, sometimes in the letters to the editor section, but more often just a lot of people you'd – Go out to dinner with people, and you, they'd start talking about what he said, whether they liked it or not. They uh-huh. often they often didn't like it, and that's the thing that I think newspapers can really do well, or news organizations can do well if they commit to this. Is they begin the conversation, and I do feel like you know, I mean, I went to see Trouble in Mind the other night, and I'm just at Harper Stage, and I'm realizing. You know, maybe I'm. I just admitted I don't go to any social functions, but I feel like those kinds of conversations aren't <laughs> happening. Even if I did go to a social function, I don't think that those kinds of conversations are are happening. You know, and I I feel like you know, I mean, in the fine arts, I, I feel like earlier on, although the current having an actual art critic was sort of a coming and going thing. Sometimes there was, and sometimes there wasn't. But there was. I mean, I, as an arts writer early on, did a lot of writing about exhibitions that were going up at the Athenaeum or the sure. old Joe Celli real artways or stuff like that. No, they pull Roger Catlin and assign him. I mean, they cross-assigned a lot of people. Yeah, they cross-assigned a lot of people. But, I mean, we were all there, and we had some kind of interest in the arts. Uh, and, you know, some of us had more training than others of us. And, yeah, I mean, I was sort of, for a long time, like circa 1980, I was sort of the relief pitcher for everybody. Uh, like if, if Malcolm couldn't review a play or a movie, I was going to do it. Uh, I, 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 in a very unqualified fashion, uh, reviewed jazz performances a couple of times when Owen McNally was sick or something. Um, mm-hmm. I, if I were Chick Korea, I would demand something, you know, some kind of, although I gave him a good review. Anyway, but I'd sort of, and, and on and on, you know, and you just, the understanding was that, yes, we had specialists, they were very good, but we also had people like me, I'm not really a specialist in anything, but I know a little bit about most <laughs> most things, and, and I just feel like that's the beginning of cultural literacy. That's what makes it a rich and exciting place to live. If you live in a place where, you know, where those kinds of conversations are unfolding, then, um, then you live in a better place. And I, I do think it's a, the part of the role of the news media somehow to help that happen. I mean, here, you know, we've got, we, we never do as much as we want to do. I, this show focuses on the arts a bit. Uh, Ray Hardman has this wonderful uh, television program now, and he and Diane Orson and people like that often do features about the arts. But, like, I don't know. I really feel like newspapers are an important part of this, and they're just right, never so- going to do that again. 
No, and I agree with you. But I, I guess, and I'm not suggesting that you have the answer to this question, but why ask it anyway in a, in a we setting? Like, so where do we, as people that love culture or do cultural work, go with this? What can we build to replace what's been lost? Do you have any ideas about that? You don't have to, obviously. But I, I do have an idea. I, I mean, I do have an idea. It's an idea that I actually Good. pitched. I, it's an idea that I pitched here about 10 years ago, and I didn't get anywhere. But I mean, I think you have to look at... <laughs> <laughs> you have to look at the ideas. I, I, if I pitched it now, I'm not going to pitch it now because I'm older and I'm exhausted and I can't start something. I don't think I can start like a whole new enterprise. But um, but somebody could. Uh, what I what I was basically saying is like now we have in terms of the coverage of government here in Connecticut and in most states. There is something like the Connecticut Mirror, something like CT News Junkie. You have, you have something, well, something like the no New Haven, something like the New Haven Independent. By the way, the New Haven Independent and the whole, whole Paul Bass Empire down there, and Tom Breen and Lucy Gelman, they are really covering the arts down there. <laughs> that is a place you can just look right down there and say, okay, you know, Helen Carter or whoever can get uh, their art space down there covered, you know, in a knowledgeable and thoughtful manner. And, and I think that's the model. I think we need a statewide model. You know, in in most states, you I should agree. you should have something like the Connecticut Mirror or CT News Junkie, but it should be about the arts. Uh, now, yep. I'm too okay. old and demented to start, <laughs> to, but somebody who's like 45 should start this. You know, I mean, Paul and I are yeah. tired. <laughs> um, so I think the first place to start is to convene a conversation with funders and some interesting people about the need for that. You know, because obviously they're also going to have to fund some of that stuff. But no, I'm glad to hear you say that out loud. It's good. All right. Well, thanks for your call. Although I lost okay, Tracy, Tracy, who wanted to talk about Robert F. Kennedy and Peter Hotez. So here's what I, I'm making an announcement right now, to, not to the listeners, but to Lily, the producer of the show, and to Kat, the technical producer. So we're going to change the plan that I had at the beginning of the show. We're going to go to a pledge break at 30, pretty much 30 on the nose. Uh, that'll be at the end of the A. Uh, <laughs> this is the kind of plan that we usually – I usually don't discuss on the air. I'm usually like typing it out on Slack or something, but that's too hard to do right now. So basically in about two minutes, we're going to go to pledge uh, and then we'll come back for the B and the C. All right. So meanwhile, um, I could probably quickly take this call. All right. What's going to happen now is Tracy's going to call back and we're going to go to a pledge break. But here's William from Windsor. Yes, if we could do it with alacrity, we can do it. Hi, William. Hi there. Hi. Um, Colin, thank you for being brave enough to take this call. Sure. It's about a, a difficult environmental issue, and it came to my attention. I checked it out a little bit. I looked into a company in North Carolina. They're clear-cutting forests in North Carolina, and the lowest use of this timber that they're using is to turn it into wood pellets for be burned. For, for your pellet stoves, yeah. 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 And, and they're, they're, it's kind of a hoax. They're calling it sustainable fuel, but it's, it's, it's probably not. You know, it's going to England. Yeah, no, I mean, unfortunately, I mean, it's sort of interesting how like wood stoves and stuff like that became for a long time kind of synonymous with sort of a whole earth uh, mentality. Uh, I, I think that's kind of wearing it down. I mean, obviously, there are ways to do forestry. There are ways to harvest lumber, timber and stuff like that and, and – that are sustainable and with replanting and stuff like that. But if you're just clear cutting, no, maybe not so much. Um, all right. So here's what we're going to do, as I previously announced, to a possibly bewildered public. Um, 
So what we're going to do uh, is we're going to take a break right now. Some nice people presumably have been informed that it's being thrown to them uh, to uh, raise some money. This is a pledge drive. We'll be, I'll be right back very, very shortly. I will be back presently. And we will have more talk, more phone calls, more fun, more merriment. But meanwhile, if you like this kind of show, if you like the, the risk-taking that might be involved in a format like this one, please, when these people ask you to make a pledge, do so. Please do so. Make a pledge. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Send back all your invitations And your father to your sister He explains That you're tired of yourself And all of your creations Won't you come see me Somebody who kind of vacillates on Bob Dylan. I was never like both feet in on Bob Dylan as a young person. But perhaps because we are both lions in winter now. <laughs> he speaks to me a little bit more powerfully. All right. So uh, first of all, welcome back to Ask or Tell Me Anything. The plan here is that you will call well, not you necessarily, someone, people, individuals, humans, extraterrestrials are welcome, 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. And by the way, speaking of extraterrestrials, first of all, it's great to have Lily Tyson uh, there screening calls, but also we, I apologize kind of for the fact that we haven't really been able to put together a show that responds to the Leslie Keen Ralph Blumenthal bombshell, uh, which uh, which appeared in a publication I believe called the Debrief. Ordinarily, they're the ones who've been writing about uh, uh, UFOs for the New York Times, often for page one of the New York Times here in the golden age of UFO acceptance. Uh, but anyway, they have a pretty exciting thing in there where they've got this guy who's a, a new whistleblower who basically says, you know, Fox Mulder was right. There are the government has access to crashed 
uh, vehicles, uh, I mean, like outer space vehicles, and maybe even bodies. Uh, one of Lily Tyson's gloves, they found that. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're going to get to it somehow. I don't know. It's a, it's a matter of, we feel I feel like we've done a good job covering UFOs. And so we've got to get to this. All right. So our number, you, you don't have to call up about that. 888-720-WNPR. 888-720-9677. We are going to go to the phones right now. And here is, uh, whoops, I got to do the thing right. There we go. Now we got a Mike from Woodbury. Hi, Mike. What is on your mind? Hi, Colin. How are you? Just Thank fine. you for taking my call. Um, so um, I, I definitely want to hear that UFO show when you do it, uh, by the way. Um, but uh, I had a recent experience. I, I'm a, a retired film producer. I'm about your age. Um, and a friend of mine who teaches at one of the city colleges in New York, teaches film and television, said one of my students would like to uh, to talk to you to get your advice about you know getting into that business. So I said, sure. So we got on Zoom, and this kid was like, you know, 19, 20, whatever, and uh, Gen Z. And, uh, you know, I expected, well, you know, God, I know it's how competitive it is. How do you get into the movie? And almost one of his first questions was, well, how do you find people that you can work with? And and the second question was, how do you deal with the stress? And all of the questions seemed to be about, you know, how, you know, his psychological well-being would be serviced, <laughs> you know, instead of just, you know, how do you do this? I mean, this is, a, this is a high bar getting into this business. And I, since then, I've read articles by college professors and people that there is definitely, you know, a trend towards more concern with work-life balance than uh, just, you know, succeeding. And one has to wonder, what does that mean? I mean, maybe it's a good thing in a way, but what does that mean for the future of productivity? I mean, if these kids get older and get into the workforce, and pretty soon they're the major part of the workforce, and I know there's only always exceptions, but I mean, in, I mean, what does that mean? Does that mean that there 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 not going to be any entrepreneurs because you have to work too hard to be an entrepreneur? Well, and, you, know, you know, yeah, I see what you're saying. Let me just sort of just say this. First of all, yes, you know, it's a little bit of a, a risk in generalizing, but I, yeah, I you know, I teach uh, I teach college undergraduates, uh, and I kind of have a sense. That, that's not entirely – let me just say two things. First of all, Andrew Yang would say, well, it's good. It's good that they do that. Right. It's good that they think because a lot, of, a lot of the need for productivity may be dwindling quite a bit. And so having a more fully developed life might be a good idea. We're working right now on uh, an episode about humanism as a response to uh, whatever kind of rise of AI is going to happen. But I, I, I think that that's right. I, I mean, I think it's good. I think by and large, it's good. I, I am, you know, supposedly you can divide people up into people who either work to live or live to work. And I, I'm definitely in the live to work camp. I mean, that's what I like mm-hmm. to do is work. And I'm working pretty much seven days a week. And I'm not complaining about it. That's that's how I like it. Uh, I have no life. So, um, but I, I don't think that's necessarily healthy or good for everybody. I wouldn't set it as a standard for my producers, uh, many of whom are quite young. Um, you know, if they if and and I also think the jobs and work need to be defined differently than they sometimes are. Jobs and work are not about how much time you spend. I mean, early on, yeah, in a lot of jobs, a lot of if you're working at an investment bank or a law firm or someplace like that, there is this kind of idea: you should just be busting your hump and you should be working sixty-hour weeks and seventy-hour weeks. 
And I mean, I don't know. That's the ethos of those places. I don't know what you can do about it. I think probably the work that is being done in our our 54 is not as good as the work that was being done in our 20. Uh, and I, to, I, the way that I define work around here is we have a job to do. Let's figure out what that job is and then get it done. I don't really care how much time it takes. Like if you get it all done in four hours in one day, that's fine mm-hmm. with me. I don't need to find another four hours of stuff for you to do just to feel good about our Protestant work ethic. To me, that's the issue. What's the job? Mm-hmm. Can you do it? I, I'll hire a, any kind of person who thinks about it that way. And, you know, sometimes that means, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're going to – have an 11 hour day one day because just the job got really weird, you know, but you're also hopefully going to have another day where you compensate for that. I'd rather have people who are kind of happy, kind of have halfway decent lives outside Mm -hmm. and are fresh and smart and ready to do the work when it's there. But all I want, you know, we need, we typically do four new episodes and we're usually working on some other kind of crazy, funky thing. I need all that done. I don't care if they can get data done faster. That's fine. (laughs) Me, <laughs> yeah, I don't need mm-hmm. their butts sitting somewhere. So anyway, that's right. my reaction. Yeah, yeah. The, the other, the other thing is apparently. I mean, there's another article I read where kids, these kids, you know, they may know how to code, but they, they don't know how to dress in the office. They don't know how to deal with clients. They don't know how, you know, you know. It just there's certain skills that they don't seem to have. Yeah, they, um, they can get those skills, and I think all of that stuff is changing, and there's less time spent in the office. And anyway, if you've ever, if you've ever seen me. I have pioneered a, a look, which I refer to as overeducated hobo, uh, and um, I'm really in no position to talk to people about how they dress. Uh, I would be the first to admit that. So what am I supposed to do over here? A little confused. Well, it looks like Iman is ready to go, right? All right. So Iman from New Haven, uh, you have the floor. A regular caller, I should say. Yeah. Hi, Colin. Um, I wanted to talk. I have two things I'd like to say about sports. I think the first one's a little bit frivolous, um, but I just want to share it anyways. Um, I would love, and this will never change, but I would love it if every sports league, all the names of the teams had, like, a theme. Mm-hmm. So, like, for example, in baseball, if they were, like, all the mascots were birds and nothing else, because then it would be, like, more fair, fair, it would be, like, bird against bird. Or, like, in football, if they're all <laughs> mammals. Like, then it's like mammals and mammal. And I will say, I think the WNBA comes closest to this because all of their mascots are sort of like mystical. I mean, one of them is literally the mystics, but you have like the sun, the storm, um, the mystics, the mercury. It's like, it's like almost like an astrological reading or something like that. And I love that. So I just wish all the different sports leagues had like more thematic team names. Here's the only, first of all, you're, you have a wonderful mind, a wonderful, elastic, exciting mind, and your ideas are always very interesting to me. And this is a very interesting idea, which I think everybody loves, except the one thing that I, I'm concerned about is like, do we want cardinals and bluebirds to be fighting with one another? I mean, don't we want cardinals and bluebirds to, like, do we want to be pitting, you know, do we want to be pitting ravens against hummingbirds and stuff? I don't know. That seems a little fang and claw to me, you know? I, I understand, but they, birds do compete over resources. I don't know if you've <laughs> played the game, like, wingspan yet, but, like, yeah. they're, they, you know, they compete over resources. I will say that all the birds in football are, like, birds of prey, and then all the birds in baseball are sort of, like, you know, like, not birds of prey. They're, I guess, I don't know, are cardinal songbirds, but... Cardinals so, are, like, cardinals, yeah, actually, there's cardinals in both sports. 
but oh, there are yeah. okay. So, so, so how much I know. Not to blow a hole um, in your theory or anything, but, <laughs> but it's still a good theory. Yeah, football they tend to have ravens and eagles and stuff like that. Yeah, um, and no surprise, that's part of the ethos. All right, I like the idea. I'm going to ponder it. Uh, and Iman, as usual, you have added uh, a wonderful spritz of interestingness to this show. What should I, should I take the break? I should take the break now, I think. Okay, so Mary Jo, don't hang up. I would love to talk to you about this. Uh, so don't don't hang up. We'll take the last – we have a break. <laughs> I'm completely confused about what we're doing now, and it's my own fault for changing the rules. And we're back. And it's time for me to say some thank yous, especially to Kat Pastor, who is our technical producer today. Lily Tyson, the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, is the person who's in there uh, who's uh, doing all the call stuff. <laughs> That's What is that called? Uh, I forget what it's called. But anyway, she's the person answering the phones when you call in. When you call into 888-720-WNPR uh, or 888-720-9677. It's not really or. It's the same number. But um, – Differently expressed. All right. We're going to go back to random phone calls. Here is Mary Jo from Milford. Hi, Mary Jo. Hi. How are you? I'm fine. Um, I listen to you often, as I can, uh, and I appreciate all that you offer to the audience and public radio. So thank you very much. Um, I have two issues. Uh, I'm not sure, given the time which ones you want to take first. Um, let's say number one is um, you said one time in the radio that you wanted to start with the new U.S. Constitution, and that intrigued my interest as to why you feel that way, and maybe it should be uh, addressed in a full show. And the other that is... Uh, close uh, to me um, that I feel passionate about is uh, gun violence. My particular concern is that we don't seem to hold parents, neighbors, friends accountable when people like the woman who killed the school? Killed children at the Christian school, um, or many, many others, have left a trail, uh, a record of what they intended to do, and yet there's no accountability for people who knew either about their disability, their emotional anxiety, or knew that they had intentions to go into a school and uh, kill. Right. So let me just, I I probably can deal with both of them a little bit, um, although we're a little short on time here. The Constitution, I'll say it this way, first of all. I mean, the the process of making this Constitution was fundamentally unethical and not something we would stand for today. In other words, the Constitutional Convention consisted of 55 white men meeting in private. That's who designed the government that you live under. <laughs> 55, 55 white men meeting in private 
and day drinking, uh, which is probably why some of the things like the Second Amendment are hard to understand and open to multiple interpretations. Like that amendment could have been written better. But would we ever do that now? I mean, think about all the things that we insist be done out in the open <laughs> these days. Uh, and then think of something as basic as the foundational document of the country. And, and it wasn't done out in the open. Uh, and, you know, there was like one person taking notes. <laughs> that was about it. Um, and, and another part of this is the kind of the Rawlsian thought experiment. Uh, to design a just society and a just system of government, design a system that you would be willing to live under without knowing in advance who you would be. You don't know in advance whether you're going to be white or black or Asian uh, or an indigenous person. You don't know whether you're going to be fully abled or whether you're going to have some kind of disability. You don't know whether you're going to be born into wealth or, or poverty. You don't know anything about it. Um, so what's the best system if you don't know anything about it? What would you be willing to live under? And obviously, the constitution that they struck was none of those things. I mean, first of all, half of the human race was disadvantaged by it. Women had you know, no rights, essentially, under this constitution. And it's entrenchment of slavery and then it's construction uh, of, a, of an electoral system that would really ultimately also privilege slave states. Uh, it's all just so deeply, deeply morally wrong. And, and the other problem with it is it, you can't fix it now. You can't change it. It is virtually impossible to amend the Constitution. What has happened sort of over time is the rate at which amendments were passed slowed down and down and down. And in modernity, there's almost nothing you know, that can be done. There's almost – it's almost impossible to imagine an, an amendment to the Constitution that you could get passed because, A, the system's cumbersome and unwieldy, but also because we don't longer have the kind of consensus about much of anything. Um, so I, I feel as though, you know, and, and other countries, other perfectly normal, well-developed, sane, industrialized countries have scrapped constitutions and written new ones, sometimes multiple times in, in during the period that we've been hanging on to our tattered old dysfunctional one. So, yes, I would. I, it won't happen, but I would love to see us start from scratch. Uh, and and do a really good constitution this time when <laughs> it doesn't have like an electoral college and things like that. Anyway, I guess I don't have time for the thing, thing about the guns because we have to go. But once again, people are going to ask you to please, please support this station, this company. Um, <clears throat> it's a company that obviously plays host to this particular show. So if you like this show, be nice when they ask you for a pledge, which they're going to do for a few minutes. <laughs> 